Hi, Simon Hill here. Enjoy our podcast. If you'd like to help us keep delivering the sort of quality football chat you want, then you can show your support by making a donation. Big or small, however much you can afford, we appreciate all your help and every cent will be ploughed back into improving production. Thanks in advance from all of us at Shim, Spider and so much more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. much more. Take it away, fellas. Hello again. Good to have your company for another edition of Shim, Spider and so much more. We're up to episode 15 and as Maury reminded us this week, we've had some cracking guests and Bruce Jitte's chat last week particularly resonated. Hopefully this week as well. We've got Scott McDonald coming on a little bit later on. In the meantime, we'll discuss all the big issues, including the announcement of the big kickoff to the A-League and W-League seasons. Maybe my editorial helped a little bit last week. All in the company of two of the golden generation who are so famous in this country, they only need nicknames. Welcome along to Spider and Maury. How are you, boys? Very good. That's not, that's not a bad little intro, ain't it? <laughs> oh, you liked that one, didn't you, hey? I a little you Zelko, I think ego. I'm in trouble. Hey, anyone who calls me Zelko, I think I'm in trouble. I think, oh shit, what have I done now? <laughs> well, we'll call you Spider, and we'll start with you, Spider. Um, confusion reigning, I read, over the start of Super League 2 in Greece. Now, I read in a paper over there, not that I can read Greek, it's all through Google Translate, that it's been postponed again due to non-agreement of TV rights. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually worked out okay for us. Uh, we had we, we had two weeks off. Now we've only got one week off, so it means the teams that we're supposed to play that are going to have two games under their belt, they only have one game under their belt. So it's not bad for us. We still kick off on the 7th of November. Okay. Maury, um, you were up in Scotland, of course. I know you were, you were down in England watching the Merseyside derby, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But uh, uh, Saturday's old firm game between Celtic and Rangers, no wonder you've got a big smile on your face. Rangers four points clear after winning 2-0. Mate, it was a it was a blue weekend. Uh, mate, delighted for for Rangers to to get that result. Uh, it certainly puts down a marker uh, for the season. No trophies handed out at this stage, obviously, uh, but psychological, um, you know, a great result for Rangers. Um, and they were dominant, Simon. They were dominant in this game. 
Uh, Celtic looked a little bit toothless and certainly uh, lacking that crowd, that 12th man, that support, I think was a huge factor uh, in the, the result of the game. Okay, thanks very much for the moment, boys. Uh, let's get into it then with Simon Says. Simon Says. Well, this week's op-ed was inspired by a tweet from Vince Massaro, who said this, I need you to channel my rant on how Australian football spent so long trying to move away from the way we play internationally because of some complex about being physical. Puss Hitting was the last international guy that got it. It's a fair point, Vince, and I do tend to agree, although I'd argue Pimba Bacon and Holger Ossig also got it to a certain extent. The question of playing identity, which is touched upon in part at least in the first of the 11 principles, has always been one that's left me scratching my head. For all the talk of Brazil's Yoga Bonito and Spain's Tiki Taka and Holland's Total Football, the modern game, it seems to me, is so globalised that a lot of the teams are homogenous in look. Take France, for example, the last winners of the World Cup. They had great individuals such as Kylian Mbappe and Antoine Griezmann. But there was also a structure to the team, a balance of physicality and organisation, epitomised by Angolo Kante and Paul Pogba. Le Bleu conceded just six goals in their seven matches in Russia. The problem in Australia, in my opinion, is that we've become wedded to concepts and systems successful in other countries and tried to adopt them as our own. The key element in this, of course, was the national curriculum, which under Han Berger incorporated 4-3-3 and building up from the back as standard. Nothing wrong with that as an educational tool for kids, but it does seem to have been counterproductive in producing a generation who are a touch one-dimensional. The snobbery around physicality has exacerbated this, and if you add in the lack of game time for youngsters, as underlined by Graham Arnold recently, then we're left with a whole heap of confusion and concern. In fairness to Hamburger, his curriculum was only ever meant as a coaching guide, not a doctrine, but it was taken as such by many. Coaching guru Ron Smith put it like this two years ago. What was implemented was a system where you blow a whistle and players all run to their starting positions like robots. It was the complete opposite to the philosophy that had been in place for 25 years, which was about developing individuals within the team structure. Culturally, there was a mismatch. This, for me, is the crux of the issue. Australia is not Holland, it's not England, Brazil or France, and we should really have the best of all worlds because we have innate physicality, but the multicultural nature of our society should mean that we have more variety than most. Germany adapted their football to their multicultural society brilliantly. Mesut Ozil of Turkish origin is not your archetypal German midfielder, nor is Leroy Sane of Senegalese heritage your classic Teutonic winger. But their different attributes were blended in with the core values of organisation and physicality and ruthlessness under Yogi Lowe. There are signs that this is changing in Australia, where Ange Postacoglu's team were all about being on the front foot and Bert van Marbeck's more about being cautious. Graham Arnold's approach seems to be a mixture of the two. He seems to be less anchored to finding players to play around a system than finding a system to suit his players. I think that flexibility is probably the right approach. The modern game is about transition, pace and power allied to technique. Once we had some of those qualities, but in chasing the others perhaps we cast aside the ones we already had. For sure, work on technique and at junior level, individuality needs to be freed up again from the rigours of a doctrine that might have worked for Holland but wasn't really part of the culture here. But we shouldn't really just swap Holland for another nation. That's not what national football identity is about. It's what in, is in your DNA. 
and adapting it to fit into modern trends, not dismissing your DNA completely and adopting someone else's. All right, let's uh, move on to hard talk. Hard talk. Hard Talk is brought to you by StreamGate, which has been live streaming since 2008, specializing in custom-built stream pages, pay-per-view, and multi-language streaming. They can cater to large online conferences with multiple simultaneous streams and destinations, including all social media channels, servicing Australian-wide clients. Go to streamgate.com.au or find them on Instagram. So the A-League... And W League is back. The start date's officially announced uh, this week for the 27th of December. 161 uh, games to be crammed into 23 weeks. Your thoughts, boys? Maury, start with you. Well, delighted that we actually have a date uh, so people can uh, lock in and know what the, the future of the A League and W League seasons look like. Um, look, I mean, obviously, timing. Is always was always going to be a challenge, Simon, with uh, the broadcast deal running out in July, um, to get these games played uh, in a, in a short period of time, and to be starting smack bang in the middle of summer. So, look, that part is not ideal, but I don't feel as if we had a choice, um, and at least we have a starting date now that we can all hopefully build towards. Start being positive about the squads, um, the games, and hopefully, a positive season ahead. Spider? Yep. Yeah, look, not much more to say. I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head with everything that's said. We've got something to look forward to. We've got a timeline. Uh, and let's get excited by the new season. Um, let's talk about the big story of the week. Carl Robinson jumping ship from the Newcastle Jets to Western Sydney Wanderers. And prior to that, the departure of John Paul de Marini. Uh, only three months after he signed on with the Wanderers as full-time head coach. Uh, I think you can understand why Carl Robinson is in demand, but is it the right thing to do, both for him and for Western Sydney Wanderers, particularly with regards to to John Paul de Marini? Yeah, difficult one, especially for JP. Obviously, uh, having the opportunity to be the head coach so quickly taken away from him, um, which we know happens in football. Uh, we have no idea what the reasons are. Uh, the club's obviously taken a different direction. Uh, Robinson, for me, fantastic. Fantastic fit for Western Sydney Wanderers. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity for him. Maureen? Yeah, I think, look, I, look, I, I really feel for, for JP, but, you, you, you know, we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Uh, Western Sydney Wanderers have made a decision. Um, Carl Robinson was that that decision, and Spider, you'll know you'll know better from your relationship with Popper. Western Sydney Wanderers, um, they maybe felt that you know that relationship with Popper and and JT and <clears throat> that togetherness to drive the club forward. Maybe they feel uh, from what they've seen from Carl Robinson, the impressive job they've done at Newcastle Jets, that, that he is that man. So, look, feel sorry for JP, but I wish Carl Robinson and Western Sydney Wanderers all the best. You can you can imagine uh, and understand completely that Newcastle Jets fans are, are very unhappy about this situation. Finally, they thought they had uh, the guy that was going to lead them to the finals, and uh, he, he's departed uh, within a few months of taking over. I think a, a, a large part of the reason for him leaving Newcastle, of course, is the precarious financial situation 
uh, that the club finds itself in. Uh, the rumour is they haven't received a cent from Martin Lee, uh, the current owner. That's uh, since October last year. I don't quite know how that can be the case. But are you concerned at all about the future of the Newcastle Jets? They're a very important club strategically, aren't they, to the A-League? Well, you have to be concerned, Simon. Uh, to lose a manager like Carl Robinson in this situation tells you there is big, big trouble at the club. Because if there wasn't, there's no way in the world they would have lost a manager that done such a great job and finished the season on such a high. The whole Jets supporters would have been so excited with the year to come. For him to leave tells you there's trouble. They can hide it. They can say whatever they want. It's clear as day. Yeah, and look, Newcastle, uh, you, know, you touched on it, Simon. They're, you know, they're a club from a region that, again, we would love to, to see them be able to get get that right. Um, you know, they've got great history in terms of the A-League and what they've, they've achieved. Uh, but the talk about ownership has, has been going for, for some time. And my concern still with, with the ownership, um, in Australia, what do we actually own? Spied, you know, we don't own stadiums. We, we, we don't own training facilities. And at the moment, we're still not mature enough as a nation to have a steady uh, outgoing of players for transfer fees. So it's difficult, I feel, for Lauren McKinnon because I can imagine how difficult it must be to try and get the right owners to come in and take over this football club, which needs to be taken over. Yeah. 100%. Needs to be taken over by hopefully some locals there. And I'm sure in Newcastle, if they put some sort of group, a consortium together, Maury, I think they can do it. I think the biggest problem is, we keep talking about it, is money, the costs. The, the costs are ridiculous in the A-League, guys. Uh, if you have a look at the successful clubs in the A-League, are the ones that are owned by very, very rich, rich people who continually keep putting in out of their own pockets. Mm. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the, the Newcastle Jets can find new owners. Obviously, we, we hope that they can, and uh, I, I concur that it would be much better if they were uh, local owners, but uh, that depends on local people coming forward. So let's hope they actually do that. Uh, let's move on a bit, uh, talk about the Asian Champions League. This is a topic we, we've covered a fair bit on this podcast. Uh, story this week in the, in the Sydney press that Steve Corica, coach of Sydney FC, reckoning uh, there is no point leaving the country to complete their commitments if they can't train whilst they're in quarantine when they return to prepare for the new A-League campaign. I mean, he's got a point there, hasn't he? They've got to be ready for the new domestic campaign one way or another. Um, something might have to give in this scenario, you think? Well, look, for this, is, this is a tough one. We have spoken about it a number of times on how, how this ACL competition plays out and will it be completed? Um, totally understand Steve Corrick. He's not making any decision until they know uh, that potentially if they return, they can have the, the normal training without the quarantine so they can prepare for, for the A-League, Simon. But it's such a, such a strange situation. And certain squads, what teams turn up, integrity of competition. There's a lot of things that you need to, to factor into this. Uh, the ACL for me this season, um, I, I would have put a line through it a long time ago. Mm. I think the reason that they haven't, obviously, is because of broadcast commitments and the fact that they will lose an awful lot of money if it's if it's not completed. Um, could could be worse. Sydney could be Perth or Victory, both of whom, as we speak today, only have 
12, around 12 contracted players at the moment. Uh, Glory players, of course, are, are, are stood down at the moment. They're yet to resume training ahead of the new A-League season and the Champions League. Uh, and this week, uh, Spider Jacob Burns left Glory as well as football director. Doesn't look too good over there at the moment, does it? Yeah, it's a, it's a total total overhaul. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know, even just talking about Sydney FC and, and Perth and the Champions League, it's just mind-boggling. You know, what about Melbourne City? Uh, they'd be thinking to themselves, you know, we've just qualified for a Champions League. Surely we're going to get an opportunity to play in one. <laughs> like with the way with with the way things are in world football at the moment, uh, you just don't know. It's so unclear. I think the only thing that is clear is that you've got to look after your own domestic league and try to get that as stable as you can. Yeah, good uh, good point. Um, the Socceroos have lined up a friendly against England in November, Maury. That after uh, New Zealand withdrew again, sizing problems with COVID and getting players released, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, the spin on the story this week was that this was a bit of payback for England's betrayal, in inverted commas, regarding not voting for Australia in the Women's World Cup. Do people here seriously believe this, that England have betrayed Australia? I mean, they voted as a block with Europe. I mean, it, it seems absolutely mind-boggling to me that, that people cannot fathom this. And they think that England should somehow vote for Australia. On, on what basis? Yeah. Because um, we're a colony. They're supposed to vote for us. That's <laughs> part of the Commonwealth. <laughs> no, but as far as it is, look, it's, uh, someone's had fun with that, with that story. It's, yeah, I mean, not, not for me. But, look, the opportunity to play England is, is, is something yeah. that is a great opportunity. There's still a lot of doubt, uh, Simon, to, to be fair, whether that game with restrictions here um, increasing in the UK, whether that will still go ahead. Um, but we, we're talking, what, nearly a year since our, our last international game. We, you know, and we're seeing over here in Europe, Spides, the, uh, still the European qualifiers, the UEFA nations. So we're so far away and, and lacking so much. So hopefully we can get these games come November. Okay. Um, thanks for the moment, guys. We are going to head overseas. London calling. London calling. Yeah, let's uh, start in England. Uh, lots of talking points from the Premier League weekend, uh, not least from the Merseyside derby, which ended Everton 2, Liverpool 2. But really, that was just the bare bones of a wild 90-plus minutes, uh, Maury. You were at Goodison Park. Um, VAR central to all the drama Jurgen Klopp not happy but Everton at the end of it still unbeaten and top of the shop Yeah and, and look I, I was lucky enough to, to go down and do some pre, pre-game stuff and, and wrap up the weekend uh, preview but Liverpool got off to an absolute flyer and it looked as if this game could be anything uh, Simon but the, the Pickford challenge on um, Van Dijk uh, and how that well, that wasn't a red card is is beyond me. But it was a huge changing point, especially in that first half. Everton um, managed to get settled. Liverpool lost the influence of Van Dijk. Uh, but in the end, yeah, Everton managed to to get a, a draw um, and keep their, their run going. Liverpool uh, had a goal. What was it? An elbow? Was it an elbow? Was money? Was it an elbow offside? VAR again for, for Henderson where... He scores the winner, but obviously was chalked off for offside. So, man, we're sick fed up of VAR, let's be honest. 
Yeah, I, I agree. The VAR is a diabolical one. What was the outcome of Van Dyke Maury over there? They ACL. Say, what? Done his ACL spider. He's out for the season. Oh, that's that's massive loss for Liverpool. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. And to be fair, the challenge from Pickford uh, spides was like after the whistle had been blown, and so that's what people were saying here. That yeah, but it was. It doesn't matter whether the, whether yeah. in action or, or, or after a whistle. It was reckless, um, and it was a red card. And I mean, you know what? You know, my qualm is a lot of a lot of the things are with keepers, right? So, so Pickford, if he if he goes with his hands there, the damage doesn't get done. But for some reason, he goes with his feet. I have no idea why he's even going with his feet. What what the hell does he wear gloves for, man? Oh my god. <laughs> Bad challenge. And I think that the biggest problem is now that Liverpool have uh, said that they, they want a review into the on-field review. <laughs> so what happens if some other clubs then say, right, well, we want a review into the review of the on-field review? I mean, this is where we're at with football at the moment with this VAR. We've seen another uh, incident overnight in the game in Italy involving uh, Juventus and Crotone. Uh, which is uh, riled Juventus fans as well. So, I, I mean, everybody knows my feelings on VAR. I think it should be scrapped and, and never, never darkened. Yeah, yeah. Again. But and you're. Yeah, the but does the governing body does the governing body not see what this rubbish is doing to the game? I think it's, 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 it's incredible <laughs> yeah, because they seem to be. I mean, the, the last IFAB meeting, they actually uh, put out their, their minutes, said that they noted that uh, VAR was going really well around the world and that they wanted to expand it. And I remember reading that thinking, are you for real? <laughs> what are they, anyway, what are they that's the way Nobody is supportive of VAR. Nobody, no football person, yeah. the players, the coaches, the fans, the most important people of the game are having a bar of VAR. Okay. Well, anyway, staying in England, um, what about Project Big Picture? It it was actually shelved this week. Uh, The Premier League clubs, in my humble opinion, seeking to take a shameless advantage of the problems caused by COVID, uh, trying to sweeten up the, the lower league clubs with a package of 250 million, which is... Uh, worth reading into because there's a lot of different facets to it. 100 million to the FA as well. A huge backlash from the supporters over in the UK. They've they've scrapped it, and now they've offered the, the football league clubs 50 million, down from 250 million, which the football league clubs have rejected. But what's it, what are they playing at, Spider over there? This is just a power grab, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. Uh, it's, it's the old talk of the big clubs again dominating and taking all the money in European football. Uh, and England's no different. I, I think this is your topic to talk about. I think you should have a good crack at this because you'd be all over this. Well, it's uh, it's true because, you know, my club is, is one of those that uh, are in the big six and they wanted uh, more power in terms of voting rights, along with three others mysteriously, West Ham, Everton and Southampton for their long service in the Premier League. They want to reduce the Premier League to 18 clubs. Absolute nonsense for me. Um, again, I think it's it's about securing a bigger share of, uh, of the money pots, which yeah. unfortunately in, the, in these current times, I mean, it, it, it will be shameless at the best of times, but in the middle of a global pandemic to try and push that one through, Maury, yeah, no, Sometimes you do wonder. 
And, and Gary Neville, I'm, I'm sure uh, you would have seen that, uh, Simon. Gary Neville's come out being quite vocal here uh, in, in forming a, a team to, again, similar things that what we, we pushed in Australia with the Golden Generation, to try and secure a better future for football. Mm-hmm. Not, for, not for the top six, but for the game in general, all the way down to grassroots. So I was very pleased to see um, that from Gary Neville. Um, the big, uh, sorry, project big picture definitely has been shelved. It's a starting point though, Simon, I think for some form of better negotiation. Uh, one thing is clear, they will find a solution. Uh, that's one thing that you do have some confidence here uh, in, in terms of the UK. They will get something that will work eventually, but Project Big Picture got shelved early doors. Okay, um, some news last week that uh, Arsene Wenger is now doing some work for FIFA has put forward some proposals for new laws in football. <laughs> oh, please. Uh, I mean, seriously? Chickens uh, to replace throw-ins? <laughs> oh, seriously, man. This is a disappointing thing. We've got a, a legendary manager who has huge respect in the game, but kick-ins instead of throw-ins. What, do we just want to change the whole game completely? Like, what, what are we thinking? Let's keep the game as it is. We've got an unbelievable product, yet we just get people that are just trying to be a little bit too clever, probably looking at you know, entertainment or commercial value but forgetting the integrity of the game. Come on, Arsene Wenger is an absolute legend, but I think that's madness. Some of his other uh, um, suggestions, Spider, uh, being able to play a free kick to yourself, uh, an (laughs) interesting corner that goes out of play but comes back in to be made valid. I actually, (laughs) I'll get your thoughts on those two, but I actually don't mind this one. A change to the offside law he says his suggestion is essentially it cannot be offside so long as a single body part which a player can score with is in line with the defender. Now, yeah, I, I, I see However, that one. I said that was the only leaders. one. Yeah, that was the only one. So I could have been a striker because I used, could have used my wingspan to keep my arm on side <laughs> and just tap the ball in all the time. <laughs> what about the one about the corner that goes out that's allowed yeah, to be... But it comes back in and it's... Play on. So what happens is what? So when the seam and the fullback, left or right fullbacks, uh, clear the ball down the line, eh, and they bend it, and it goes out and comes back in. Is that is that all right as well? Yeah, that's like tennis, Maury. It's allowed. He wants to play on. Oh, come on, <laughs> seriously, I can't talk about this shite anymore, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one for this uh, for this segment. Um, news that China has withdrawn from hosting the 2022 AFC Under-23 Championship. That's due to COVID, of course. A uh, potential chance for Australia to gain another tournament, uh, Maury, along with uh, the two AFC youth women's events that they've got in 2021. And um, reading between the lines, there might be a possibility that they might go for this one. That would be a good tournament to host, wouldn't it? AFC Under-23. Take it. Run with it. If we if we if we can be that net um, that that's able to scoop up all these top um, international tournaments, great international exposure, um, you know, with what we do have on on offer in Australia, take it and run with it because it will put us in a really favourable position uh, moving forward to potentially get some favours along the way, Simon. Okay, I, I think it's fantastic because it, it'll be great preparation for the Women's World Cup. 
So it'll be a great way to actually exercise what you're going to do and do it well. Absolutely. Um, Spider, the final word in this segment goes to you. You want to pay tribute to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Well, you, you've got to. Like, the man battled COVID. He, he, was, he was MIA. He come back. He's a man. He's a, he's a lion. At Inter, Inter Milan derby at the San Siro. No crowd. And he comes and scores two goals at the age of 38, Maury. Now, uh, no. if he's not doing running on the sand track that goes the full 110 metre long of the pitch, <laughs> I don't know who is. But at 38 to be dominating the way he is, seriously, he, he, I know he plugs himself enough on Twitter and Instagram and all that, but seriously, he's a freak. Oh, no, he's, he is a freak, Spides. Like I says, if you're going to talk the talk, mate, you've got to deliver. And, and Zlatan... Mate, all he's done is his whole career is deliver. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. And it's good to see Milan back. They're, they're back. They're flying. Indeed. And you've certainly delivered in this segment. So uh, thanks very much, guys, for the moment. We're going to move on to our final segment today. And we've got another cracking guest lined up for Footballers Lives. Footballers Lives. Well, our special guest today was born in Melbourne in 1983, made his pro debut in the old NSL for the Gippsland Falcons, but he soon headed off overseas to join Southampton, and that began a near 20-year odyssey around the UK, which also took in spells with Huddersfield, Bournemouth, Wimbledon, Motherwell twice, Middlesbrough, Millwall, Dundee United, and Partick Thistle, as well as, most famously, three years with Celtic. Returning home in 2019, he only stayed a short while with Western United before landing up at Brisbane Raw, and he played 26 times for the Australian national team and was a part of the squad that reached the 2011 Asian Cup final under Holger Osik. It is a big podcast welcome to Scott McDonald. How are you, Scotty? Very good, Simon. Uh, it sounds like I've got more clubs than Jack Nicholas, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, mate. You got there first. At least you said it. <laughs> You've always got to get it especially you two around. <laughs> Scotty, uh, take us back to those early days in Melbourne. Um, how did you fall in love with football? Who was your team growing up? Um, was football part of your, your family life? Yeah, absolutely. I think from day one when I was born, there's a, there's a picture of me with this soft toy football um, that was the first thing my dad ever bought me. So it was always going to be there or thereabouts. It was always going to be a part of the game and and uh, and play it at some point. The influences of my grandfathers and uh, my dad themselves, obviously. I'm a first-generation Australian that they all resided over here. All came over in the 60s and 70s, immigrated from, from Scotland, from Glasgow. Uh, and funny enough, mum and dad's families were came over here separately. So mum and dad actually met here, and that was through the football club that my dad played for. Uh, Mum and dad met at that club. They, at, back in those days, we all know, we talk about it, whether you're, you know, you're British, uh, you know, Greek, Italian, Croatian, we all had those social clubs. They were social clubs. They were places for people to, to go and you know, meet people in the same you know, situations as themselves, you know, coming to a new country, trying to meet people, trying to get jobs, whatever it was. So it, it was a real family club. Um, and it certainly was that for me. I spent the majority of my time at Dufton um, when I was a young kid and ended up, started playing there when I was about five-year-old. Um, 
but yeah, the heavy influence obviously within my family was my father and my grandfather from my dad's side. And, um, I've always been a Celtic man. So, uh, oh, my, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but my dad, uh, my, my, my other granddad used to come back from Scotland. They used to always go back every year and he used to try and bring, you know, Rangers teddy bears and Rangers kits back. He, he ended up giving up when I was about probably six or seven and started. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least he tried. <laughs> yeah, I, I can actually wear the, the, the Scotland stuff in the end. The, the, Nice umbro gear, still remember it. Um, and I used to get all the Scotland tops as well, so so that was good. But yeah, no, it was it was always going to be ingrained early on that I was going to be a Celtic man. Um, so, and I guess that's where the journey began. Scotty, um, you know, you, sorry, you, you made your, your first team debut for, for Gibson Falcons, as I said, when you were a teenager, you were 15. Um, do you remember that game? Uh, not well. I think it was against Adelaide City. Am I right in saying that? Because um, it was against Ivanovic and Tobin. You know, two stalwarts. Of the- yeah. Well, well, welcome to football in the NSL. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right, Spider. Unbelievable. You know, like you're 15 years of age and you're getting chucked in against the biggest two-man mountains you could possibly imagine. Uh, but it was great. Uh, it was a great learning curve. And for me, I was physically ready. I was fortunate. I've never been, obviously, the tallest, but... You're the same size now, Scotty, as what you were when you were 15. <laughs> <laughs> <Especially> smaller, mate. <laughs> you get smaller as you get older, that's what they say, don't you? I've certainly shrunk that way, though. I've gone... <laughs> it used to be a semi-trailer, now I'm, I'm sort of back in again. So um, I was very wide, and that, that big backside of mine was very handy, um, which I used to my advantage very early on in my career. So um, I managed to handle that really well. And I'd played seniors, um, you know, in uh, sort of local football as well. So that gave me the confidence to, that I could handle myself, you know, when I come up against men. How, how did the move to, to England come about, uh, Scott? Because you, you, you weren't with Gibson for very long and you went over to the UK and signed for Southampton. Well, I, I was at the Victorian Institute of Sport um, and doing quite well under Ernie Merrick there. And from that, that loan move came about to Gippsland. Um, and I pretty much owe that for everything else that happened thereafter because I got into the Joey's team under Les Scheinflug and obviously, famously, we made the, the World Cup oh. final in 99 in the under-17s. And really, that's where it took off for, for me and quite a few of the others. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The boys, we, we got scouted from that tournament. But if I hadn't actually played in the NSL, I don't think Les would have probably picked me up because I was a year younger than everyone else. Mm-hmm. I was the youngest uh, squad member in that team. So from playing in the NSL, that was sort of that gave the attention for me to get into that squad and went to the qualifiers in Fiji, done really well, and then gained the trust of him and moved on to the, the, the World Youth Cup. And from that, like I said, there was... Quite a few of us that went overseas from that after the success of getting to the final. 
Um, and Southampton were one of the clubs, probably the only one that actually offered me a, you know, a contract there. And then I'd had a couple of other things from Germany to possibly go across to there. Um, and I think even Celtic had called me up as well to go and trial there, but I didn't want to go and trial. I'd previously gone to Arsenal and West Ham on a couple of weeks trial periods uh, before the World Youth Cup. Great experience, great learning curve. You know, some of the players that were there at that time, obviously Richie Garcia, Michael Ferranti, Steve Laurie, they were all at West Ham at the time, but you had the likes of, you know, the you know, Michael Carrick's, uh, Rhea Ferdinand's, Jermaine Defoe was there. And you go to Arsenal, there's the likes of the Jermaine Pennants. Um, who else can I ring off them? Jay Boffroyd. There was all these types of players. So you, you were thinking, that's the levels you've got to get to. You know, it's not as easy as what you might have thought uh, growing up in Australia. Um, you've got a long way to go. But Southampton was a perfect, you know, fit for me as a, as a young player. At that time, the financials in, in the Premier League weren't what they are now. And they were always a promoting uh, youth uh, within. So it was a, it was a great, uh, you know, place for me to, to go and learn my trade. So you, you played only twice in, in the Premier League uh, for Southampton. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that those were the only games you ever played in the English top flight. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, regrettably, because um, mm. no question for me, I could have played in the Premier League if I had had the opportunity. Just chose different pathways and, and different routes in your career, and you, mm. you end up not getting that opportunity. But um, the way it came about, Stuart Gray was the manager after Glenn Hoddle had left to go to Tottenham. They had nicked him off Southampton after he had a really good spell, and um, I managed to do really well. Uh, got my Premier League debut, and was always in and around the squads and. Unfortunately, at that point, though, we weren't getting the results and he got the sack and then Gordon Stratton came in uh, to Southampton. And at that time, when the club's under pressure, you only get it when you're a little bit older and understand um, why he did it. But um, he brought in a lot of you know, more trustworthy and more experienced players to try and get the club out of trouble. Uh, and at that, in those days as well, you could sign players all season, all the way through the season. There wasn't any transfer windows. So we brought in a, quite a few experienced ones, which seen me more or less go back to almost the very beginning. I wasn't even playing a lot in the reserves again. I was actually playing the under-18s. So that, as a young player, was very difficult um, to understand or, or, or not be frustrated or lose confidence from. You know, I was at the bottom of the mountain again and having to climb it. So when you've worked that hard to get to the top at a young age and you come back down it, um, you haven't got the answers to get back up there very quickly. And I certainly didn't at that point. So from that, I um, ended up moving on to Pastures New. Had a couple of loan periods during that. Again, not as successful as probably what you would have liked, but actually learned a lot from it. And the resilience I learned from those disappointments and coming, like I went to Huddersfield on loan during that period. And uh, it was actually our assistant manager at Southampton, who then got that job, Mick Wadsworth. So I went there full of trust and, and thinking he's going to look after me. He was part of the, the team that gave me my, my debut in the Premier League and promised to play two up front because that's all you knew at that point. And then you get chucked out on the left wing in, in League One. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when I realised I'm not fit enough. I, I, I can't run the length of myself. You know, all these boys are proper athletes, proper men. I need to... I need to up my game, you know, so I, you learn very quickly because you get thrown right into the deep end. And then about two weeks later, the club went into administration 
So it just went from bad to worse in terms of the club situation. And because you're a lonely, everyone thinks that you don't care. So you're the first person that gets off the bus or, you know, warming up that's getting the abuse because you're not actually part of the situation. Uh, they see you as part of the problem. That's brilliant. That's so, brilliant. So, so you can imagine, you know, like, so you're, I've, I've never experienced it before. Well, probably have now, but you can just you laugh it off. But at that point, I hadn't, where I was warming up and we were getting told by your own fans, go sit back down. We don't want you to come on. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the verbals. That, that's me putting it nicely. But, so, but it, um, that, that's, look, that's character building and that's, uh, yeah. that's what, what is required to be, to be a professional. You've touched on the, the, the challenges and coming overseas and uh, starting from the very bottom again. Um, however, you did you did find your place, and you did you did uh, do extremely well with your move to Motherwell. I think it was in two thousand and four. Yeah. And and do you feel as if that was probably the at the time where you you found a suitable home where you you flourished as a footballer? Absolutely. I mean, I think you all know that I'm a little so and so, and I never like sort of lost belief in myself throughout that period. I think I became very frustrated with others, and look. I think when you look back as well, you sometimes have a little bit of blame culture within being a young player. So you get it when players always look at, or young ones especially, and it's not my fault, it's his fault. You know, and you, you can't do that because there's certain things with, within the structure of what you're doing is, is the reasons behind why you are where you are as well. But I think when you get that one person that actually believes in you or gives you that opportunity to open the doors and, and flourish, which Terry Butcher did. He was amazing for me in that sense. Um, I went to Motherwell on a trial and I literally guys, I was, I was days of, of going home um, back to the NSL more or less. Thankfully, <laughs> I didn't because I think within six months later, the NSL shut down. Yeah. So I would have been lost in the wilderness to the game pretty much if I had gone home. So it's funny how things just materialise and work out. And it was big Dave McPherson who obviously played it. Um, was it Carlton? Carlton yep. over here? Yep. Uh, yep. So, you know, who became an agent, had contacts within uh, the agency world in Australia through Lou Sticker. They were working together. And they said, why don't you go up to Motherwell? I was like, nah, don't, don't want to go. I'd had enough because you'd had so much rejection. And, um Plus, you've done the trials before as a, as a younger boy, which, is, which you touch on as well, which is not easy when you're always trialling at clubs. Yeah, yeah, you're putting yourself out there all the time for, for disappointment, I guess. Um, and it was kind of one of the last ones where they're going, well, it doesn't matter. You're going to go for a week and then go home anyway. So, you know, I mean, if you're going to go home now, we'll just wait another week. And I was like, right, okay, I'll, I'll go up. And within two days, they signed me. Because, again, as soon as I got on the grass, I had belief in my ability. It was just the fact that I just... I'd had enough of the the rubbish with the game, you know, so to speak, and just the disappointment. But um, Terry was a breath of fresh air for me, and I'd managed to batter his two centre-halves in the first training session. And it was Stephen <laughs> Cregan, actually, who, who was played for Motherwell a long period, was like, you better sign him. You better go and get him, which is, I still never forget that. And really from that, guys, I, I just took off, and I never looked back, really. That's, in, that's incredible, ain't it? it we, we talk about we talk about moments in career. Mate, that's a story I didn't even know, Macca. That, that's incredible, mate. You were six months from coming back to, to an NSL that went, like, uh, was dysfunctional to actually yeah. really your career taking off. That's amazing. I mean, I think that's the thing. That's the message as well. And that's why I get disappointed. And I think a lot of us do from our era 
that a lot of players give up pretty quickly and they end up coming back to, to Australia. You know, very, very quickly. Very quickly. And sometimes you have to really grind it out to get the rewards. And, and you need a little bit of luck on the way. There's no question. But you might just find that one person that gives you that opportunity and believes in you. And you can go from strength to strength. Because, you know, it's, the game is a funny game. and We all believe in our own abilities and we have talents. But you need certain people to unlock those talents for you. And I think and if you can find that person, then you become an even better player and you get the luck along with it and you can get to show your qualities. Yeah, but like, like you said there, Maka, which is incredible, ain't it funny as you get older and you look back and you look at the hindsight of things, uh, had you had that intelligence uh, when we were young? Because I think a lot of the younger players these days, they think they know everything. They mm. think it's going to be easy. They think it's the same scenario as it is in Australia. And as we all know, that the competition in Europe at every level, it doesn't matter what level you play, first division, second division, which country, which league, the competitiveness of the players, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Absolutely, yeah. It's given us a false security, the A-League, a little bit. I just, I just want to move on from that and, and go on to your time with, with Celtic. Um, you scored a couple of goals against uh, Celtic in, in 2004-05 to deny them the title, hand it to Rangers. I know you still get reminded about this. I thought you were going to skip that just when you started saying you were going to talk about Celtic. <laughs> then you had to mention it. Just for Craig. Craig, Craig bumped you in. You've got to mention this. For those who, obviously you can't see what Craig was doing there, but he was actually punching the air uh, with glee. Um, you actually almost signed for Rangers, I understand. They had a bid rejected uh, by Motherwell, but you eventually signed for Celtic in, in 2007. And probably fair to say they were the best three years of your, of your football career. Absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, going back to that, that day, and I still say this to this day, I mean, if I hadn't have scored those goals, I think, fate takes you to certain places and I think um, if I hadn't have done that I don't think I would have put myself on the next level or the next platform you know to, to go and perform and for people to actually take notice of who I was um, you just would have you would have been going about your business and still doing the same things but I, there's certain moments in your career that, that set it off for you and, and give you a different platform and I think that day certainly the two goals I scored against Celtic gave me that um, and you're always going to be remembered in the any time thereafter, you're always going to be more highlighted for, for doing positive things. So I think from that, the attention grew. And that's how, I think it was a year and a bit later, Rangers come in. Walter Smith had just taken over again um, at Rangers. And they were trying to build a squad to, to challenge Celtic, who had won, I think, the, the, the last two titles in a row. Uh, and the bid was in there. And you know, I wanted to go, Simon. I was... I was ready. But I mean, at that point in time, you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to Celtic after historically what's just happened. So this is the next best thing and the opportunity like to get on a different platform, play in Europe. It was going to always enhance massively my opportunity to play for the national team, which was going to enhance in other ways. So to play in Europe, to try and win trophies, to get more money, it was all there. So you're saying to yourself, damn right, I want to go. Um, but the club had other ideas and we just sold another striker. So that didn't materialise. And I got to, so that was the end of January. And it was an odd, I still say it's one of the oddest transfers ever because we had the January transfer window at the time. And I ended up signing for Celtic in March. You know, I still had another year and a half left in my deal, but there was a deal agreed in the March time, which never gets done between clubs. So it was quite odd. But Celtic were obviously trying to jump 
you know, jump in quickly and get it done before Rangers could come back in the, in the summer. Um, and I think Rangers were given the opportunity to, to match what Celtic had pretty much done, but they failed to, to live up for the club anyway. They failed to, to match the fee. But once Celtic were in for me, and I, it was funny because the conversation with Gordon was a weird one. It was an awkward one. I remember we were away in China, actually. Maury, were you in, did you play in China when we stayed in Hong Kong for a friendly? Well, I don't know if you're part of that squad, actually. Um, maybe I was, it was, maybe was that my first time when, when I retired, Scotty. Uh, might have, yeah, no, I don't think it would have been. Uh, well, it might have been actually. Was it after um, the two thousand World Cup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must have been. It was the only squad I was actually in with Mark Baduka, and it was weird because that's when I got the call when we were away in Hong Kong. I've been waiting on this call for like two weeks off Gordon. He phone phones me at like three in the morning. It's just like, and you were just constant boom, like right, and yeah. he's like right. I think you've changed as a guy, you know, because everyone's heard Gordon's sort of interviews and how like straight, straight he is, you know, straight shooter. and can be quite um, charismatic and, and kill you with a sentence. Right. Uh, you got a problem working with me again? I'm like, absolutely not. Because <laughs> he released me. <laughs> yeah. Good. And it wasn't, it's funny because it was never, it wasn't, uh, he had changed his opinion. It was me who had changed. So that's why the transfer was happening. It wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with he got it wrong the first time. It was, it was just because you had done more and you had, you had evolved as a player. So, awesome. But in saying that, I don't know too many managers who would have gone back on a decision they made regardless, you know, two, three years down the line. Yeah, um, but players change. Players change. Man- managers, they're not stupid. At the end of the day, the managers still go out and get players that are best suited for them to get results. Let's not forget that. Yeah. I think, though, within the game, as we know, a lot of managers can be that egotistical that if they make a decision, they stick with it and they will always stick by it, especially even if, if it's with players. They'll choose to go a different pathway. So mm-hmm. if him did come back, I suppose I was in his face a lot and I was causing damage to his team, so we thought we might as well bring him in. Um, <laughs> And even, even then, I was never seen as a, a guy that was going to play every week. So I had to go in there and I always had that thing about me, that little bit of nastiness or confidence that I was always going to play. I, I was good enough to play here, you know, and I had that anywhere I went. Scotty, just, just those three years at Celtic, pick out some of the highlights. I know you scored your first goal um, against Spartak Moscow in the Champions League. You also scored against AC Milan. Uh, Manchester United, you scored old firm winners at Ibrox and, and at Parkhead as well. There must have been so many good memories. Yeah, there was. Uh, I managed to do, there was so much squeezed in in such a short period in time. Within that three years I was there, it felt like a lifetime. still does um, because we managed to do so many good things and we had a lot of Champions League football so, and we were fortunate enough to play against you know, the, the big clubs in the world at that point we, we always got put in the same groups as them and we'll go on to a story in a minute that Spider's involved in but uh, I think obviously you score your first goal and it's in the Champions League qualifying in Spartak that settles everything down for you um, you finally arrived um, I, look there's no better feeling than, than winning old firm games uh, and to score in them especially if it's a winner um, I think that was probably a real defining moment for me when I scored the winner at Ibrooks. That, that was a massive game. But I think the biggest one was, and people still come up to me about, was the, the AC Milan game when we when we beat 
the then European champions uh, 2-1. It was the last kick of the game and I managed to get Spider uh, an appearance fee that night. <laughs> Spider was buzzing coming on with 30 yeah. seconds. Mate, was that you made it jump the I fence? still remember. <laughs> it's funny, wasn't it? You know, because obviously Dita infamously uh, went down like a sack of spuds because a fan came up and more or less tapped him on the shoulder. So I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it. His bottle crashed, yeah. Scotty. Dita, his bottle crashed at Parkhead. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what, it's. You got to say, in one sense, so fair play to Dida. It was quick thinking on his behalf because you're trying to get the game called off, you know, like and and abandoned. So it was after his mistake, and he's thinking that, oh, that pretending like he's been hurt and injured. It was pretty savvy. I mean, it looks stupid on TV, but to the referee, <laughs> why? And I'll be honest with you, with that result, we were still worried, uh, you know, a week or so on that it was going to get reversed or we were going to get points taken off us from UEFA because the fan invaded the pitch. Yeah. So it was, for us, you know, it was a big deal because beating AC Milan, but the three points that, uh, that that allowed us to qualify for the next stage of the Champions League. So Celtic had played you guys the, the season before, if I'm right, Spider, as well. You beat them in the round of 16 in extra yeah. time. So there was yeah. history there as well. I mean, we gave them, you know, tough games. Scotty, to, you talk about your time at Celtic, obviously... Uh, we'll touch on the, the the rest of the clubs at the back end, but mate, that 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 European stage, playing European football, mate, I need to give you the opportunity to explain to the listeners what it's like to score goals at Parkhead and what it's like to play in front of that that crowd. Oh, mate, it's it's euphoric. It's like a drug, isn't it? I mean, I, I tell you, like from it, I think I I really struggled when I left. Uh, like for those moments, those those nights and. The pressures, I mean, some players don't like it. I absolutely thrived off pressure and loved the big occasion. And again, it was a chance to put your name in lights and a great platform, especially at Celtic Park. You had a 12th man. There's no question. I'm sure you could agree with that, Spider, in terms of what the crowd were like. And electric, I mean, Maury, I know you know. I mean, but those European nights, the, the, the stadium would shake. Yeah, you know, so yeah it, was, it was brilliant. The one thing that Parkhead was terrible was the away dressing room. It is the grand final of the worst dressing rooms I've ever been in. <laughs> it's, what? Yeah. Mate, talk about dungeons. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's deliberate, though. You know, you're not coming for a nice time. You might be coming mate, for a we nice We turned time. up with 45 people from Milan to go in there, mate. There was 11 that could fit in there. Ancelotti couldn't even do his team talk. <laughs> Um, Scotty, uh, you, you left uh, Celtic and signed for Middlesbrough in 2010, three and a half million. Gordon Strachan again, uh, central figure throughout your career. Yep. Um, continued a bit of an Aussie tradition, then a couple of years at Millwall, and then back to Scotland, a season with Dundee United before retiring. And then you came out of retirement to play for Partick yeah. Alive, didn't you, Scotty? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it at Thistle. Um, being at Partick, I mean, I suppose me retiring, I'd, uh, by that time, I mean, we go over that period, I was, I, I was a frustrated figure by that point. And actually, funny enough, Spider will know this as well, like um, at Western Sydney, I tried to move to Western Sydney, or they, they come in for me twice uh, when Popper was there, Spider was there, when I was at Motherwell, and Motherwell rejected the, the bids 
in the, the, the two times that it happened. Um, and it was really disappointing for me and the family because we wanted to come to Australia. We wanted the opportunity to try a new lifestyle for the family and, and for me to try and play in different football because I'd done everything in Scotland. I'd, I'd played in you know, all the stadia, uh, played in the league. And when you get to, it's funny, when you get to, you know, playing for Motherwell again and you're looking at it going, well, what's the opportunity of, uh, you know, winning things and getting to finals and, and, and playing in big games anymore? I've been here and done this previous. So for me, um, I'd had enough. You know, when the opportunity didn't come up that I could go home, I was like, right, I'm going to retire. So from that, though, I think um, it was the best thing I ever did. Um, because when I came back, uh, I was a different person. Um, I think when I was at the end, back end of my career, it was still as a goal scorer and you're very egotistical, I think, as well as, as a striker. And, and it's all about your numbers and, and performances. And if you're not getting what you want, then you can be difficult to be around. And, and, and I think I was that person. I didn't do enough at that period to help the others with my experiences um, at the football clubs I was at uh, because I was still focused on myself and it's that slippery ladder isn't it you, you, you do so much you, as you get older you get better you feel you get better as a footballer you get more experienced it's probably as a sportsman or a sportswoman uh, where the, there's not many jobs you could probably say that the more experience you get the further down the ladder you go um, with a lot of you know professional sportsmen and women so um, it was very hard to to take all that in as a as a player and I was frustrated because you still felt you, you could play at the highest level. So I, I ended up retiring and then the opportunity came that Western United were coming into the A-League and they had, um, you know, I spoke to Mark Rudin and uh, the club who were interested in signing me, but it was a case of, well, you've not played for six, seven months. You're going to have to show us that you can still play. At my age, and what I'd done previous at, at Partick Thistle, I, I started to have more responsibilities, more influence within, you know, helping others. Um, and I certainly did that uh, at Western United. Um, but it was it was made clear that pretty much I wasn't going to be one of the first people to, to play in the team. So um, from that, when the opportunity came up to go to Brisbane, where that was different, um, wanted to go and, and, and do it and try it. Plus, it's a lot warmer and nicer up here. It's more the Australian experience. Gold Coast, you know, compared to Melbourne. I don't even think. I think even when Mark Mark Rudin came, he was like, "What the hell is this?" It was just pure windy, rainy, cold. Everyone just complaining all the time. Even Diamante and Coney. So um, to get the opportunity to go up up to Brisbane, and obviously like-minded people in, in Robbie Fowler and Tony Grant, who obviously come from. British football and British background. For me, it was easy. Uh, it was just like being back in, in Scotland or in England, um, you know, under their regime and, and, and working with them. And they opened up doors along with, you know, the club already has, you know, their their sort of their MPL team, their academy structure. So within that, there's opportunity for me to move straight into the coach and stuff, which is what I wanted to do. Whereas it's a process at Western United and it looked like, not even this year, they're going to have that in place, obviously due to COVID and everything else. So from that, it's it's been a great move for me because now I get to, to move into other things as well and, and work on, uh, you know, the other side of the game, and which is what I want to do. I want to be a coach. I'm on my pro license at the moment, um, helping the under-14s within the academy and, 
now going to be helping the NPL team hopefully in the future and working with the strikers in the first team. So lots of exciting things to come with that, but still got to perform on the pitch as well. Indeed. Um, one more question, Scotty, before we get into a couple of Twitter questions to finish. Um, we have to deal with the elephant in the room, and I know that you've been asked this question a million times and it irritates you, but the 26 caps for Australia and the zero goals next to, next to your name, um, why did it not work out for you with the Socceroos in terms of your goal return? That's not to say you didn't contribute on the pitch because you certainly did, yeah. um, but you just weren't able to, to, to find the back of the net for your country. I think I think you you hit now. I don't think my performances were poor within those appearances. It just I just could never, I never adapted tactically to to what uh, the national team you know would do. And I think for me, I just touched on it there at the back end that I always was an influential or a player that was important to the teams that I played in. And I felt like um, within the Australian setup, I was probably I've always said this as well, like. I was probably one of the luckiest players to play in the era that I did, but I was probably one of the unluckiest uh, you know, younger players coming through at the same time because of the amount of quality we had within that Australian setup at the time. So I never got the opportunity to play one game, two game, three game, four game. And that was a big issue for me. I needed a continuance within the squad, not just jumping in here and then coming out again. It, it, sort of, it was a stop-start thing for me, and it, just my confidence from that never grew. Um, and then as the games went on, it was always the first question. And you said, like you said, the elephant in the room. So it became a bigger thing without me. Without, I would try and brush it aside, but I think it, it definitely did have effect. Um, but it's something I look back on and, and don't really have too much bitterness towards anymore. I suppose I went through a period where it was, you know, it was hard for me to, to take that and, and deemed as a, you know, for me as, as failing because not scoring for your national team. And not getting to a World Cup, which for me was, I'm still, I still scratch my head why I didn't go. Because I think when those big games come around, because I did it at Celtic and, and other clubs I went to, that whenever the big occasion was going to come, they were the, the times when I was going to come alive. And I think going away for a long period with a team in a World Cup would have helped my causes to be in and, in and around day in, day out, a squad and feeling part, more part of it. Um, so to not get the nod to go to South Africa after being part of all the qualifiers. That's more of a disappointment than anything else. So your goals aside, you know, because you play, you play the game for moments like that and memories and your ambitions when you're a young kid is to go and play in a World Cup. Not, I mean, score for your, your national we have, Sorry, we, we've had this conversation quite quite a few times. And, and I, look, I think that you were certainly uh, harshly treated because let's not forget at the time, your best football was always up and around another striker. So you had someone to, to feed offer. With the national team at that particular time, we were playing a lone striker. So you were at times a very isolated figure. You were still um, contributing. You were still doing what you do in terms of backing into players, bringing other people into play, assisting. Uh, but that, that goal, it never came. But the interesting thing, we've, we've had a few conversations. In terms of your general feeling, of when you first come into that squad, you, you felt it really difficult to to feel embraced by the the group. You want to touch on that? Yeah, I did. I do, you know and I think it probably comes from leaving Australia at such a young age. I never really bought back into the culture when we got into the Australian national teams. I was more Scott 
place in my mentality than what I was uh, Australian at that point. And I couldn't, I couldn't adapt. I couldn't move back into that way of thinking or that type of, I don't know what it was. I mean, I probably was more suited to probably play for Scotland in my mindset because they were all my mates and the way they played football. And I had an understanding with those players. Coming back to the national team, I never got a connection realistically with the, the players or the coaching staff or anything like that. So it was, it was very difficult for me. And I think maybe as well, because the longer the goal doesn't happen as well, the worse in your head it becomes. No one else has got a problem with you and you're getting on fine with everyone, but it's just in your own mindset and, and it's becoming more and more difficult. And I think that probably was a big problem for me. Mate, I've got to ask you a couple of serious questions, mate. I've got to ask you the best stadium you've ever played at and I've got to ask you the biggest dungeon you've ever played at. <laughs> uh, the biggest dungeon I've ever played at is probably Glebe Park Breakin. Oh. My it's called, <laughs> it's called it's called the hedge, mate. They've got this the hedge. big hedge around it, and like we played there with Dundee United my last season, like in the in the Division One, and like honestly, it was the coldest day alive as well. And for me, it's like three and a bit hours away, and you're just like the mushiest pitch. It was cold. There was no like the, you know, it's like the old school like change room. There's no heating in the whole like. Yeah. Place. Mate, it's got to be a dungeon because I don't even know and all our <laughs> listeners will be Googling it. It'll be the most Googled thing today. <laughs> you can ask Maury's laughing, so he knows exactly what I'm talking oh, about. No. Yeah, I mean... And the best stadium, Scotty? <laughs> oh, look, I mean, I can't go much further than playing at Celtic Park in the atmosphere yeah. that you played in, but a way, you know, out with yeah. that, I would have to say the new Camp... Um, the new camp was unreal playing there, and the San Siro for the history, and you know it's a bit more older fashioned, as Spider will know. But just the aura. Hey, how good is the new camp? But it's not good chasing shadows for ninety minutes, is it? <laughs> Mate, <laughs> I swear to God, we went there. We were three one down already um, in the first leg. And we got there, and within 60 seconds, uh, Xavi had scored, mate. So it was like, <laughs> oh, my God. This is, so it's 4-1 aggregate, and all they did was pass it around for the whole game. They beat us 1-0, yeah. and they just had a cigar out. You know, they played Sheva on 105 metres by 70 metres <laughs> and played Sheva. <laughs> <laughs> they did, mate. It was ridiculous. It was just but a great experience. Um, and, yeah. Like I said, one of the best stadiums, you know, no roof on it and just the atmosphere. Scotty, we've been running for almost 40 minutes and we're aware that you've got to get to training. So we're going to let you go. We've, got, we've just got time for one Twitter question. It's our question of the week. Uh, congratulations to Gabriel Wilkins, who sent this in via Facebook. $100 voucher for Outback Steakhouse going your way, uh, Gabriel. Scott, what is the one thing you love about the A-League and one thing you would change? Um, the one thing I would love about the A, one thing I would change, um, would be the salary cap. That's that, that has to go. People have to start, you know, now being more planned and, and have a philosophy for their football clubs going forward. Um, the one thing I love about the A league is it's all new to me. So that's what I love about it because I've not experienced it before. So for me coming back and that's what I wanted. Um, to play against different players, to play against a different style of football from playing in the UK and different conditions. My God, the conditions, you know, <laughs> playing in this summer heat 
to start with. When I, my first game in Brisbane, I almost passed out. I only played 10 minutes too, but the humidity is that high. <laughs> You're going to enjoy kickoff time when the season starts. I know, 27th of December, so that's going to be uh, interesting. But we're lucky enough that we'll probably do a lot between now and then, and we have the conditions to acclimatise. Uh, it's very difficult for people coming here, which is an advantage to us. So hopefully we can use that again this year. Scotty, it's been an absolute blast. It's brilliant to, to reminisce about your fantastic career and uh, hopefully it's got a bit to run as yet. We should let you uh, get off to training. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Scotty. Scotty, cheers, mate. Scotty, love your salmon top, but not sure about that jersey in the background. <laughs> <laughs> For those who can't best, see that, of course, it's insulting. Cheers, mate. Good luck. Cheers, boys. Cheers, cheers mate. And that is us for another week. Join us again on Shim Spider and so much more. Same time, same place next week. Until then, bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.